From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. New guidelines from the Office of Personnel Management give agencies latitude in deciding which jobs and employees should move to the new Schedule F. A memo from Acting OPM Director Michael Regas gives agencies guideposts in determining which jobs to convert. GovExec reports Regas writes agencies will have discretion in making Schedule F decisions. More on this in a moment. The electronic health record system the Department of Veterans Affairs is moving to is in place at four facilities tonight. VA began the transition to the Cerner system Saturday. The Mann Grandstaff VA Medical Center in Spokane, Washington, four outpatient clinics in that area, and the West Consolidated Patient Account Center in Las Vegas are the facilities using the new system. The first meeting of the Advisory Committee to implement the Evidence Act is in the books. Shelley Wilkie Martinez of the Office of Management and Budget says OMB will release official guidance for implementation in early 2021. NextGov reports OMB is working on both Phase 2 implementation guidance and Phase 3 regulations. That new executive order that will make it easier to hire and fire some federal employees will give agencies until January 19th to officially reclassify Schedule F positions. Jeff Neal's former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He's chairman of the National Academy of Public Administration. Ron Sanders is former chief human capital officer at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence and now former chair of the Federal Salary Council. He's staff director at the Florida Center for Cybersecurity at the University of South Florida. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks very much for joining me. Ron, I start with you. You write today uh, this. On its surface, the president's executive order purports to serve a legitimate and laudable purpose, that is to hold career federal employees more accountable for their performance. However, it's clear the executive order is nothing more than a smokescreen for what is clearly an attempt to require the political loyalty of those who advise the president, or failing that, to enable their removal with little, if any, due process. Who'd you write that to, Ron, and why? So, Francis, uh, your sources are great because you've obviously gotten your hands on my letter of resignation. I'm effective this morning. I resigned as chair of the Federal Salary Council for the reasons articulated on the screen. That happened to be a passage in my letter. And um, this is a matter of personal um, conscience. Uh, the Federal Salary Council is an obscure body and its chair is an obscure position. It is a presidential appointment. But as, uh, as you indicated, I've resigned effective this morning because of the Schedule F executive order. Uh, in my humble opinion, it's a very sharp two-edged sword. On one hand, it purports to hold federal employees more accountable, a, a laudable subject if that were the case, but there are uh, a number of reasons to be suspect of it, and we can talk about that. The other very sharp edge of this sword is it gives agency heads a chance to appoint political appointees, literally a massive burrowing-in effort and so I worry about both of those, especially given the timing of this executive order. And as a matter of conscience, I, I just um, couldn't be part of it. Jeff Neal, welcome. Uh, correspondent wrote to me this weekend that this should be called Schedule FU. You titled a blog post last week, White House Drops an F-Bomb on the Career Civil Service. And you wrote this as well. It's the most direct assault on the Career Civil Service since the passage of the Pendleton Act in 1883. Why so? 
Well, Francis, it's because of exactly what Ron said. It, it's purporting to be something that addresses the, the problems with getting rid of poor performers. But the reality is that everything about it is done in a way that really is creating a new class of political appointees. And it could be tens of thousands or literally even hundreds of thousands when you look at the executive order and the, the definition of policy making or policy advocating positions. Policy advocating is, is a loophole you could drive a fleet of Mack trucks through. So what it's doing is it's creating tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of political appointees. And I don't know anybody who's realistically looking at the federal workforce who says what we need is to increase the number of political appointees tenfold or twentyfold. It's just it's it's just so blatantly nakedly political that I, I think you've seen from people who have a lot of different opinions about the federal workforce, almost universal uh, disgust with this particular executive order. It's it's just simply uh, undoing 137 years of merit-based civil service. And, and that's where I think it's it's really uh, a devastating attack. We'll talk about the response if we have time, but I note this passage and call your attention to a gentleman in the guidance that Michael Regas put out on Friday. The executive order, he writes, directs each agency head to review positions within his or her agency and identify those positions appropriately categorized as confidential policy determining, policy making, or policy advocating, and then petition OPM to place those positions in Schedule F. Gentlemen, from your experience as Chico's, what if a Chico at an agency does nothing or responds, we didn't find any? Ron, you go first, please. Well, I have to tell you, I, I worry about that because that, in many respects, legitimizes the purpose of the executive order. You want a responsive career civil service. And um, if a career civil servant disagrees with the policy of a president, not just the president, any president, there are certain appropriate things that he or she can do but slow rolling it, going underground, again, to me, that just uh, makes the reason for the executive order um, appropriate. You want career civil servants to be able to speak truth to power. And let me make a point here, Francis. The, the executive order focuses on policy advising, policy making, policy advocating positions. Look, political appointees make policy. They make the decisions. Career civil servants are supposed to give them their best advice, but they always have the prerogative of ignoring that advice. And this executive order puts them all in one basket and says, we don't care what that advice is, it's your fault, not ours, for making that policy decision. And that troubles me a great deal. Jeff, that's quite a conundrum that Ron describes. Do you see it the same way? I, I see it the same way to a degree, but I, when I look at this and look at how it was done with really very little work, very very few people involved in actually writing this executive order. A lot of the background work that you would normally see done in a major policy that would affect tens of thousands of employees wasn't done. So the Chicos who are gonna be asked to implement this have a lot of background work that needs to be done that really is going to take months. And I don't know if they're gonna be able to do it by the, the January 19th deadline in the executive order. Uh, there, you know, normally when you do something like this, you would do enough prep work up front that you would have a good idea exactly how many employees are going to be affected. But nobody really knows that right now. So in a department the size of the Department of Homeland Security, for example, with 
almost 200,000 uh, career employees, you could easily have 10 or 20,000 people covered by this. And going through that number of job descriptions, looking at who they report to, what kind of work they do, and all of this type of thing that has to be done, you really can't do quickly. So I wouldn't call it slow rolling it. I would call it trying to actually implement it in a way that is legal, consistent with the executive order, and would stand up in court, and that, that, that you could actually explain when inevitably you get called to the Hill to testify about it. And I wouldn't want to go testify about something and say, yeah, I was given an order to do this. And so I just ran as fast as I could to do it and didn't pay attention to the, to the, um, to the niceties of, of civil procedure and didn't, you know, didn't do it right. So I think doing this thing is going to take some time. I don't think it's going to get done by, by uh, January 19th. And depending on what happens next week, uh, I think we have some event going on on Tuesday next week. Depending on what happens next week, it might get slowed down even more. Jeff Neal, Ron Sanders, a lot more I'd love to cover, but we're out of time. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Up next, a technology strategy for the workforce of the future. Straight ahead on Government Matters, making the office away from the office more productive. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. This year's Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey includes questions about what employees think about the government's virus response and remote work. That information should impact budget cycles and strategies of all kinds this year and beyond. Mark Foreman's Vice President of Digital Government Strategy for SAIC. He's former eGov Administrator at the Office of Management and Budget. Mark, thanks very much for joining me. You have this unique balance of understanding budget cycles and information technology. What should leaders be thinking about as they're planning, not just 22, because that's the budget cycle the agencies are in now, but 23 and beyond? Well, I, I think based on uh, the work that we've been doing and the results from our survey of government-wide executives, it's pretty clear that there's a shift underway from what we used to call telework. And I think in the future, we're gonna look at that as the, the, the natural work environment or remote work at, at a minimum. Uh, just a, a little bit of data, uh, before the pandemic, people were basically teleworking less than two days a week. After that pandemic, or even right now, we see agencies like the health agencies working more than five days a week and they're doing it virtually. And when we ask them about what would happen post pandemic, it's pretty much more than three and a half or, or four days a week at least that people will be working remote. So I think you have to think about the, as a, a CIO or a federal executive, how does this change the way that you do your work, the way you collaborate, your access to data and your systems? And that involves not just the technology and the security, but your business processes as well. 
The second question that strikes me to come behind those that you just posed uh, as the first ones is how do you make the investments that you need to make in order to support that? What, what do you, once you know what you have and you know what you need to get to where you want to be, figuring out the investment seems to be the second piece. Is that a fair read? I think so, and, and I think what, in general, there are three phases that we've talked about this before that most agencies go through in a, an event like what we've had with the pandemic. And the first is just the triage. So there were a lot of near-term solutions to give people access to equipment and to bandwidth. Uh, I think that's going to now go through another phase, and I believe a lot of agencies are already in that, where they're improving the quality of their security, uh, their access to data and systems. And the third phase, we'll see some restructuring. And, and this really is where the business case comes in on, on re-engineering and reinventing the way people do their work and collaborate. Uh, and, and it may be that you're also looking at physical investments as part of that. And I think you've had uh, both the, the chief management officer and the head of GSA talking a bit about what they're looking at the future of the workspace. So it's going to be a pretty comprehensive look at uh, physical and virtual ways people will have to do their work and want to do their work in the future. Are there things that may not seem uh, obvious on first inventory, the kind of inventory you're describing, that agencies should make sure that they double check and triple check for as they're building these strategies, Mark? Well, I think another fascinating insight from the survey that we did is the uh, the focus on number one keeping their workforce safe and that's uh, kind of a mixed use of the physical facilities and when people come in some agencies they have to come in uh, to do the work in defense and intelligence agencies and so i i think that's uh, going to be a unique area of investment is how do you create a safe workforce while we're still dealing with the, the pandemic and that mix of physical and virtual environments. The second thing that, that I found very enlightening in the, the survey that we did was the uh, concern about effective use of taxpayers' resources and prevention of fraud, waste, and abuse. You know, in, in the past, we relied on physically seeing somebody or talking to somebody, seeing a physical piece of paper and with the movement to online transactions, that changes a lot of the core business processes. We have to get out of the physical world, and that's going to have different implications if you're a regulatory agency versus a benefits or grants-making agency. Uh, so that's the that's second big area that I think we're, we're going to see a lot of inventing and, and leveraging of new approaches. I appreciate your use of the term remote work at the beginning of our conversation or thinking about this as a natural work environment. I'm reminded of a term from way back in my old radio days called name it and claim it. Whatever you call something is what that something becomes. And it strikes me that that nomenclature is important, isn't it, Mark? It sure is, because I, I think there was a, an a notion, at least in most of the telework initiatives for a couple decades in the federal government, that that was a nice to have. And now it's core. It's no longer telework was you could do one day a week and, and uh, avoid the traffic. It's now people are going to work remotely most of the time. 
We have about 30 seconds left, Mark. What would you like to see from your former uh, agency at OMB? What would you like to see them do to facilitate the things that we've talked about in this conversation? Well, I think a focus on how now do they do that business case? How do they link up things like the IDEA Act initiative, which requires a better user experience with evidence-based policy making investments in this context of us moving away from a physical document-based world? Mark Foreman, thanks very much as always. Great to talk to you. Thank you, Francis. Up next, steps agencies can take now for the future of work later. Straight ahead on Government Matters, innovations that could last long term. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The federal government's remote work response has included some of the same elements as private sector companies, but some of the policies and some results are very different. John Kamensky, senior fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. John, thanks very much for coming on the program. You and some of your colleagues at the center have been writing about what's going on and what managers should be doing moving forward. Titles, distance work arrangements, the workplace, the futures now. And one chapter in this, you write about six challenges managers of remote teams must master with your colleague Michaela Drust. I want to focus on two of those in the time that we have. One of them is ensuring there's tech equity within the team. What do people need to make sure do, they're doing management-wise about tech equity? Well, one of the things that we've learned in uh, our research is that it's really important that you have uh, the technologies that, that's needed. And in government, uh, the transition as a result of the pandemic uh, largely focused on uh, providing the kind of technology at home, whether it was the laptops, the connectivity, uh, the ability to access uh, resources back in the office electronically, et cetera, and the, the security, be able to do remote work. And so that was the emphasis within government. But if you look at what was happening in the private sector at the same time, the private sector oftentimes had those kinds of technologies in place. And so their emphasis instead was uh, placing the uh, focus on the people dynamics of being able to work a, a long distance relationship over a longer period of time. So it was work-life balance, it was teamwork, it was how do you work with clients, how do you uh, wind up uh, dealing with organizational culture. And to that point, you and Michaela write uh, challenge four is learning to manage differently. That's fine as a bumper sticker. What does that yeah. mean in actual execution, John? Well, what it really comes down to is that uh, it, it is a different dynamic that be able to find out what uh, a manager is being able to find out what an employee is doing is that oftentimes there's more connection from a distant uh, work re uh, relationship than when in the office, because in the office, it's oftentimes informal, you can just walk by, but you have to make a conscious decision when it's something that is in involved in a distance work relationship. So uh, there, the, what was really interesting, I thought, 
was the managers have to ensure parity for those employees that are working on site versus those working off site. You have to make a conscious effort. Uh, in the case of, of IBM, where we worked, we went from 40% of the employees that were working off site to 95% in a three week period. And th that was a, a big change for a lot of people that are like myself that had always worked in the office. And so the managers have to be much more uh, conscious about managing as opposed to merely just walking by and waving hi. You make a point, uh, you ask a question in this work to that end, will the implicit expectation be office first or distance first? I know that you ask that as a rhetorical question in this piece, but I wonder, John, what you think the actual answer to that question is. Well, what's happened that I think has very been, been very interesting is that this whole shift over the past seven or eight months uh, is going to result long-term in a more of a split between in-office and at-home, that employees not only want to do this, but the managers now feel much more confident than, that employees can be productive. Uh, in fact, some agencies found their productivity went up after uh, the uh, distance work arrangement went. But it's a different way of managing, and this is, in a way, a, a move of three to five years ahead of where people thought we were going to be to a, a, a digital environment where it's going to be cloud, it's going to be tele. Uh, conferencing and video conferencing, more use of collaborative tools, whether it's in the office or out, I think that the habits that have been developed over the past few months are going to stay with us. John, about 30 seconds left. You said earlier you called this uh, that managers should make a conscious effort to connect. Uh, the word, other word that comes to mind to me is intentional. Is that what you're talking about here? Yes. And, and the thing that I, I thought was interesting is the uh, uh, deputy chief of staff of the Air Force has already declared that 40% of their work, civilian workforce is going to continue working in distance arrangements uh, after the pandemic is over. John Kamensky of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Great to see you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.